0: Imagine, demand and build a world transformed.
1: Hello, Um, thank you all so much for coming here tonight um, to join this discussion. My name is Miriam, I'm the Director of Research and Advocacy at Commonwealth Think Tank. We work on ownership strategies for a democratic and sustainable economy. Um, Today we published a fascinating report by Sol Gamsu exploring the scale of economic gap between private and state schools in England and exploring how to democratise the ownership of private school wealth. Now, of course, educational inequalities were highlighted throughout the pandemic from the digital divide to the resources available for schools to accommodate the needs of young people. And as we begin to rebuild our economy and our, build our way out of this crisis, it's a fitting time to ask broader questions around the future of education. So the format for this event will be a presentation from each of our three speakers, um, followed by a Q&A session with you all. Um, Please add questions you have for the speakers in the box. Um, uh, Should there be too many questions, we'll try and group some of them, um, but we'll hope to get through as many as possible. Um, I am lucky to be joined tonight by some outstanding panelists um, who will be discussing various aspects of educational inequality. Um, First we have um, Dr Sol Gansu who is an assistant professor in the Department of Sociology at Durham University, he specialises in the politics of education and how structures and experiences of power and inequality in education are reproduced over time and through different local and regional geographies. And we also are joined by Professor Rebecca Bowden, who is um, the research director of the new social research programme at Tampere University, Finland. um, And Stephen Longden, who is a teacher, the co-founder of the Abolish Eating campaign and a labour counsellor in Trafford. So without further ado, I think I'll hand over to our first speaker, Saul.
2: Thanks, Miriam. Uh and thanks for TWT as well for putting this event on tonight. So, um, the report is uh, is live, which is fantastic and lovely to see from my point of view. And um, it, it looks at the, the economic gap between private schools and state schools in England. Uh, and it does that for the 2017 18 year. And I'll say a little bit more about the data and how I did that, um, how I. And the analysis that I did in a second. Uh, before I do that, I want to, and before I go through some of the key findings, I want to just um, highlight to you a um, why this report and why now. Uh, and, and as Miriam said, COVID nineteen has has really exacerbated inequalities, and and we've seen as well um, that the Sutton Trust and the IFS uh, and others find. Um, find substantial gaps uh between private schools and state schools in in the the education that they were able to access during the during the two uh, lockdowns which affected schooling um and that gap actually widened between the, the first and the second lockdown because i think more of the uh more private schools were probably able to to, to provide more online learning than than state schools were Now, the catch-up discourse is, I think, in itself uh, problematic, given the the extreme sort of mental uh, pressures, uh, mental health pressures that have been placed on students um, and parents. Um, But the the catch-up funding that the government put forward last week is, is, if anything, even worse. Uh, And the the, the DFE funding is commits around eighty pounds per student. um, And as we'll talk about a bit in the the report and as the report says that just doesn't come anywhere near scratching the surface of the economic inequality that exists between private schools and state schools um and this i think creates uh rich terrain and 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 promising uh, terrain for conversations and, and campaigning around educational inequality um, and uh, in this case the private state school funding gap specifically because of because of the context that we're all going through. So I, I think one of the things that, uh, one of the, the sorts of questions that I hope uh, come from, from this report and that I also hope we can discuss a bit tonight uh, are, and, and And what this report is aiming to do is really allowing people to understand the wealth that creates the advantages offered by private schools and and to try and start local conversations around inequality, around social justice, um, is this a system that's fair, sustainable or justifiable? Um, and these are, these are long-term questions that we need to be to be asking of the education system and it's timely in, in, in COVID to think about what, what sort of society we want to build as we hopefully move towards coming out of, of some of the, the, the lockdowns and experiences that we've been through over the last 18 months. So what would a radical or progressive educational politics look like in that context? Uh, and, and the work that I, I'm doing in this report is, is really trying to take us back, trying to take the, the, the left back, in a sense, to some of the earlier demands and policies and politics that were raised in the early, 20, early 20th century by the trade Union movement, by the Trades Union Congress, around the... Around demanding their share or demanding full democratic ownership of the endowment wealth held by what are now seen as private schools. Uh, And also, they were also interested in Oxford and Cambridge and the endowments that were held there. And and what what was being demanded was really that that money, that historic money, much of which was left in the 16th and 17th centuries, often for poor scholars, primarily boys unfortunately at that time um but that demanding that that historic money be used to create a national uh, education system um and those demands became sort of quieter and quieter but they uh over, over the over the 20th century and and petered out um but i think it's time that we think about Going back to those early policies and politics and demands, because those endowments are um, both historically and, and, I think, politically, we, they are things that we should be making demands over. And there's there's work been done on the the people like Mary Bridges Adams, um, also Clyde Griggs, who wrote about the the Trades Union Congress and their their early politics. So that's where we're sort of going back to. Um, and the the sorts of things and histories that we can draw on here. So I'll talk a little bit about data and methods before I get into the findings in the report. So the data for the report comes from the Charities Commission website. Uh, I collected the charity numbers by hand for all the uh, English Headmasters Conference schools, um, and I would have liked to have looked at the Scottish uh, and Welsh schools as well, but... The, the complexity of, of, of combining these different, the different data sets that I used meant that I just needed for practical reasons to limit it to England. So there are 20, 216 institutions, uh, It's slightly more than 216 schools because some of them have um, associated prep schools or some of them are, are diamond schools with a boys school and a girls school and then a shared sixth form. Um, But it's 216 institutions, um, and it's worth saying, of course, that private schools are a diverse group of institutions. There are uh, special independent schools uh, for students with uh, disabilities and also smaller faith schools. But what we're talking about here and by focusing on the Headmasters Conference is we're looking really at the, the more established, predominantly middle class and elite schools who are members of the Headmasters Conference. So now into the into the data and into the findings. So this is uh, there are several maps in the report which are uh, there to give you some idea of the, the geography of economic inequality. And what you can see on this map is the the average income gap between the the, the private schools in uh, the study and in those particular areas. And uh, the, the average state school spending uh, income per pupil um, that that secondary schools and all through schools state schools have in those areas and that's both academies and local authority maintained schools so so what you can see here is that really it's it's a it's the, the biggest gaps in in funding are in the rural, Counties of the south of England, and that's that's really where you have the most acute and the most extreme economic inequality. Um, and we'll go through a couple of uh, an example of that in a, in a second. Um, on average, uh, the 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 median income was took um, twenty one thousand six hundred and sixty four pounds per pupil for the private schools in this sample, uh, compared to five thousand seven hundred eighty two pounds per pupil for state schools. So you can see already that on average, um, those the, the private schools in this study are, are getting nearly four times the income, um, and on average it was it came out as three point seven times uh, in in larger than local state schools. So for each pupil the private schools in this study had 3.7 times the income to spend that their state school peers would have. So you can see here that the the massive level of inequality uh, that that exists um, between different schools across the country and I'm going to focus in on a few more specific examples of this, um, because broadly what, you, what we see in the data is that there are, there are three groups of schools. There are um, provincial private schools, um, mostly but not exclusively in the north of England, uh, which have smaller economic gaps, uh, although those gaps are still significant. There are rural boarding schools. Uh, Primarily, although again, not exclusively, and there are exceptions in the north of England, like Ampleforth College, for example, in North Yorkshire. Um, But these rural boarding schools really have the biggest gaps. And then you have um, day schools, private day schools, and particularly those in London, where you you see, again, quite considerable gaps uh, between those, those private schools and local state schools. <clears throat> so, the first, looking at some of the schools in the north, and this is just to pull out one of the schools in uh, in, in Oldham. This is Oldham Hume Grammar School, which had an income in twenty seventeen eighteen of just over ten thousand, so ten and a half thousand pounds per pupil, and it, it it was similar to other private schools in the north of England in the and, and private day schools in particular, in that. Whilst it still had uh, over three thousand pounds more than than the closest um, the closest secondary school Oasis Academy, it the the gap was much smaller relative to some of those really wealthy super wealthy private schools in the south of England, um, and it's it it's worth saying that Oasis Academy, which has um, about seven just over seven thousand pounds per pupil, had. Um, nearly 30% of its students eligible for free school meals in 2017-18, which which likely explains why that figure is is higher than the, the average per pupil income for secondary schools in England. So moving on to the to the really super wealthy boarding schools, this is Marlborough College, um down in Wiltshire. And this had £64,627 per pupil to spend. Um, just uh, just under a mile away, St John's Marlborough, uh, the local state secondary school had five thousand six hundred and forty-seven pounds per pupil. So, Marlborough had nearly twelve times the income of uh, local state schools in 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 Wiltshire, and. Um, And and what you can see here is really the the presence of extremely wealthy rural boarding schools, which creates a polarisation and a a level of inequality which which is really quite extreme and acute. Um, And even if you account for the cost of boarding, and and for the the year we're looking at state boarding schools, there's a handful that still exist, their boarding fees were on average about £11,000. So even if you account for the cost of boarding school approximately, the gap here is still absolutely huge. So lastly, uh, looking at day schools in London. Uh, again, you see some quite acute economic inequality in the capital schools and St Paul's Girls' School, which was the the highest, um, the, the wealthiest uh, day school in uh, London um, and in in the country. Um, on a per pupil basis, again, has a, a big difference relative to Sacred Heart High School, um, less than half a mile away, um, and. Hammersmith and Fulham in West London is particularly has has a particularly large number of very wealthy day schools. So the other two in um, and three of the top five day schools for income uh, per pupil are in the borough. So the other two are Latimer Upper, with over twenty just over twenty five thousand pounds per pupil, and Godolphin and Latimer with twenty one thousand six hundred and seventy nineteen pounds per pupil. Um, and not all of the London private schools were quite that wealthy, but the presence of these extremely wealthy day schools is is conspicuous because in other cities they 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 aren't there on that scale. Uh, Brighton is 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 a partial exception to that with Rodean and Brighton College. So policy proposals that the report outlines a range of policy proposals from going from voluntary donations from the schools to full scale integration. Um, I mean, the question that I'm interested in really is, is how could you use this report? Or how do you think it could be used and the data in it? And there's also a link which um, I've made available uh, through social media to the data, um, so that people can look at local areas and and see see whether there's a private school in that area and what the economic gap is. I think some of the things which I, I would I would hope we could do with this data is 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 perhaps asking local private schools to voluntarily pay their business rates relief. Um, mm-hmm. And in Taunton, there was an attempt at doing this. Obviously, in in Scotland, they're already moving towards uh, removing that as well. um, And that's been passed through Parliament there. Um, National reform is some way off, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't stop making demands and debating these issues um, and thinking about what a free education and emancipated education system could look like. And on that point, one of the proposals in the report is to create a people's educational endowment now bringing private schools into the state system would cost money about 2 and a bit billion pounds but if we were to to imagine for a second that that we were in a that we had a a, a progressive and a a, a tr- radical transformative government what could we do, or what would we do, with the investments, endowments, and endowments that are held by these schools? Uh, and, and in the the year that we looked, that I looked at here, they had an income of about 81 million pounds um, from investments, from endowments that they'd been left historically. Now the proposal is to that that money could form a people's educational endowment with income aggregated ethically invested and then distributed for additional participatory community education projects, extra education money in a well-funded state system with perhaps 5 million pounds being allocated to each local authority area, rotating once every five to 10 years. And with community assemblies of students Uh, young and old, education workers, parents, and so on, debating and proposing different projects, which could then be put to a vote. And to to just visualise what that could be like, um, these are some images from George Allen, who's um, an architect and an artist, um, who produced a a wonderful piece of work um, as part of his uh, master's project, um, including these images of neighbourhood libraries, which might be one thing that the money could be spent on community-built education spaces, and multi-purpose, multi-age community learning centres. And we've never had an education system that was truly built for the majority of people, and I think it it falls on us to always be demanding one and, and trying to start to build it. So thank you.
1: Thank you so much, Sol, um, for providing that run-through of such an important report um, which really exposes the sheer scale of educational inequalities and hopefully your overview will get some ideas flowing for the questions around what a fairer education system could look like, what kind of society do we want to build and what role should education play in that, how can we democratise private school wealth and how can people and communities drive the change here. Um, so without further ado, I'll move on to our next speaker, Rebecca.
0: Thank you very much, Miriam. Um, it's a very great pleasure to be here. <clears throat> I do apologise for the fact I've got a really horrible cold at the moment. Um, and I, I'm really excited about the publication of this report by SOL. There's a growing body of work that seeks to make an informed contribution to school policy in this field. And this report is very much part of that. I'm an accounting professor, but I'm actually a critical accountant. That is, I'm interested in how financial regimes of control, including things like taxation, determine individual and social outcomes. In turn, my work is founded on the premise that the rules that shape the regimes of management accounting, financial accounting and reporting and taxation are themselves social products in that Moses didn't come off the mount with the rules of accounting and and law kind of inscribed on on the tablets, people make them up. I do much of my work on higher education systems, but of late I have got very interested in private elite schooling, particularly in England and Australia. This report clearly articulates the differential in funding between state and private schools, but why should we care? And it is, and is it any of our business if people are paying for themselves? I think it is for two reasons. First, it's important to know exactly where all that educational resource that Sol just introduced comes from. Is it from all from the people who benefit or are the state or the public actually contributing as well? And second, it's important to remind ourselves that inequalities in the resourcing of education basically how much cash goes in and what the facilities are like, this matters because resources inexorably drive educational outcomes. So unequal school funding will lead to social inequalities that can often be lifelong. The unequal outcomes that come from unequal resources aren't just in terms of the formal markers of schooling, such as exam results. They're also evident in terms of the social and cultural capital that private school students acquire the cachet, the networks, and the ways of being in the world that ease their future lives. So an education that is better resourced than those around you will give you, on average, a significantly improved life chance. This means that to create equity and improve social mobility, we need to allocate public educational resources on the basis of need, not the ability to pay. Boris Johnson has made much of his so-called levelling up agenda of late. Sol's report suggests that we'd need to spend a lot of cash to bring our state schools up to the level of, say, Eton, where Boris Johnson went. So instead, I think controversially, we need to do some levelling down or at least some levelling out. And let me explain how and why. Because I'm an accountant, I like to look at wealth rather than just funding per student. Wealth includes not just the annual incomes of school, but also their capital holdings, as either trust funds or endowments, and their physical assets, such as their buildings and other estates, which all contribute to resourcing education. So how is the wealth of these schools constituted? First of all, the Sol's indicated there's fee income, and this is the largest source of annual revenue for schools. Fees are high, very high, as this report ably demonstrates. Malcolm James, Jane Kenway, and I demonstrate in our latest work that a private school education can be seen as a positional good. The price is determined by the social status attached to the product, and in a Veblen pricing twist, the higher the price, the higher the cachet of education. If it is pricey, it must be good. This reinforces the beneficial outcome of private education. Our work also shows that there is a distinct evidence of commercial pricing in England by these charities. They charge what their customers can pay, not what the education actually costs. And all of this fee income is, for those schools with charitable status, which is a good number of them, tax-free. Secondly, in wealth, there's the assets. All of that money flowing into schools has to go somewhere, and because if they're charities, there's no shareholders to take a dividend, they, they have to use it within the organisation. They can either give this money away as bursaries or fee remissions, or they can treat themselves to something nice. And it's important to understand that many of the elite private schools in England have physical estates that would be the envy of five-star hotels or luxury spas. This valuable real estate has been paid for from endowments, bequests and donations, and also from the tax-free fee income of these schools. Oh, and because of their charitable status, private schools enjoy significant rebates on local property taxes. Luxurious facilities add to schools' cachet and and enable them to charge even higher fees. The third source of wealth are the endowments' bequests and other gifts, which generate income in themselves because they're invested. Endowments, as this report outlines, were originally established for the benefit of poor scholars. That is, they had a charitable purpose which in the 17th century meant that they were there to benefit the poor. This report summarises how these endowment funds have been effectively transformed quite legally into resources used almost exclusively for the benefit of the upper middle and upper classes. My recent work with Malcolm James and Jane Kenway demonstrates how the beneficiaries of mechanisms like scholarships are in actuality quite wealthy. And because these schools are charities, further donations to schools as bequests and gifts can attract significant tax relief. Jane, Malcolm and I argue in our work that there is a massive wealth grab going on here. The sequestering of very significant levels of wealth in charitable organisations which exclude almost all but the very wealthy as their beneficiaries. That considerable wealth is then utilized to enable not just an elite education, but an education for the elite, sustaining intergenerational social advantage. This edifice is sustained via charity law, tax law, and accounting rules. These rationalize and legitimize the status quo. This is why work such as this report is so important, It seeks to draw back the technocratic veil around English private education to reveal the realities of the social inequalities it sustains. Problematically, the details of how charity and tax law and accounting work in this regard are complex and shrouded in mystery. This impedes change. Of course, it's important to bear in mind who writes those charity laws, tax laws, and the accounting rules, and they are to a very significant degree. The work of the people at the Sutton Trust shows people who attended these private schools. So, what is to be done? This report sets out a series of policy options and is extremely valuable in that respect. The most radical policy option, not in Sol's report, is that adopted in Finland, where I work where some years ago all the independently operated schools were effectively absorbed into the state system and it is now illegal to charge school fees in what we would regard as mainstream education or indeed undergraduate education so I'll repeat that you cannot charge school fees in finland but i think that given the uk's rhetoric around choice which doesn't exist to the same degree in places like finland this this would be a step too far So my case for reform is that we can and should adjust the resources for education in such a way that the state funded that the state funded by the regular taxpayers whose kids go to state schools and charitable resources held in common are no longer used to effectively subsidize privileged elites so we withdraw from those schools the uh, tax reliefs, And also the the benefit of all the charitable resources that they have as part of their wealth. And I've got four points to to finish on, um, three of which are in Sol's report. First of all, end all the tax advantages for for private schools, which Malcolm Jane and I estimate to be in excess of three billion. That's billion with a B a year, which I notice is twice the government's proposed COVID catch up fund. Sol's report summarizes our work, which charts how these tax breaks came about and there are no real barriers to their removal. Second, as this report highlights, we should transfer all the charitable endowments of the private schools into a people's endowment fund so that these state subsidized resources intended for charitable use can be put to beneficial use for all of the UK school students, not just a privileged few who are already wealthy. Third, the school estates. These tax-subsidized assets are, again, charitable resources. Ownership of them should be passed to the People's Endowment Fund. And I would propose that the existing private schools could continue using them, but on a lease basis. And the lease payments would go to the People's Endowment Fund for the benefit of all of the UK's school students. And finally, and here I add to Sol's excellent suggestions, I first suggested in a letter to The Guardian in June 2019 that it was unjust for privately educated students to effectively have preferential access to the UK's better universities, which they do in huge numbers, and proposed a cap, fining universities that took excessive numbers of privately educated young people. The economic rationale for this is that our universities are heavily state subsidised via the writing off of student debt. We would not like it if people who were able to see a private GP were able to jump the queue to get into an NHS hospital because their GP could write a letter, a better referral letter. So why do we do it for schools? Elite education would continue, no doubt, albeit slightly less well-funded and perhaps with increased fees. But we would have ended the slightly bizarre situation of the UK taxpayer and public charitable resources subsidizing the education of the already extremely wealthy, while state schools are patently struggling. Resources originally attended for charitable use would be used to benefit those in need and withdrawal of the status of charity would I think dent the reputation of these schools and expose them for what they are, business-based engines of privilege. Okay, thanks very much.
1: Thank you, Rebecca, that was brilliant Um, and there's plenty to think through there for our discussion as well. Where does the money come from? Where does it go? How do sources of wealth exacerbate inequality both in terms of educational outcomes and more broadly? Um, And how does the current policy landscape around private schools from charity policy to tax law and tax rules um, facilitate this? Um, so we will move on to our final speaker now, Stephen. Thank you.
3: Uh, thank you, Miriam. And uh, thank you to Saul for inviting me to speak today. Um, first of all, I'd like to thank Saul for, for the research. Um, it's, it's really uh, excellent uh, to see it. I know we've been talking about it together uh, for a year or two, at least. Um, Saul and I have uh, been working together. Uh, around the issues of private schools for the last few years, and uh, in more recent years, we we came together to be uh, the co-founders of Labour uh, Against Private Schools, of which I'll talk about more in a couple of minutes. Um, I, I will I would I will say uh, at the start, it's it's very clear from what we've heard already from Saul and Rebecca that the extreme inequalities between private and state schools in England it's one of the cornerstones of the the gross social inequalities we see in the country. This is not an uh, accident of inequalities, these are clearly by design and the private school sector has been designed to perpetuate and facilitate the levels of inequalities, the gross level of inequalities that we see in this country. Um, And again, Seoul's uh, latest research will add an extra level of of data and analysis where we can see, particularly at the local level, uh, the impact of these gross inequalities that private schools uh, perpetuate. And uh, I know what's particularly useful for somebody who's also a secondary school teacher in Greater Manchester, uh, in Charlton, in fact, in the south of Manchester. Um, we are seeing, certainly even within the classrooms and certainly within the staff rooms, increasing levels of discussion and understanding and nuance within those discussions of the impact that private school inequalities uh, are producing. Even my own students, your eleven students, at the beginning of this academic year, we had a fantastic, uh, unprompted discussion about the huge disparities that they see and that they're very aware and conscious of um, between themselves in a State Comprehensive School and uh, Manchester Grammar School, for example, just down the road, um, which is only three three miles away, which um, has per pupil funding well in excess of, of twice what we have at Cholton High School. The children may not know the details, but they are very aware and very uh, attuned and sensitive to what that means for themselves, the inequality, The unfairness that means in their in their own life, in their own opportunities and their chances. So this is, whilst you know we have Sol's excellent academic work, this is also a very real grass founded on a very real grassroots conversation that's taking place um, in in my school and schools right across the country. And one of the reasons that I think. the public at large are becoming increasingly aware of, uh, of this is, and I don't, you know, I, I will blow my own trumpet and, and Saul's trumpet, is some of the fantastic work that Saul and myself and Holly Rigby and Rob Poole have been involved in, another uh, secondary school teacher here in the north of England, is in the campaign that developed around Labour Against Private Schools. Um, we punched well above our weight in terms of the national media in 2019, where a whole plethora of uh, articles, comment pieces, and um, even you know, whole you know, five ten minute uh, video pieces in the Guardian about uh, the inequities of, of private schools appeared. Something that's not appeared for decades, quite literally. Um, and that, uh, from what I see, it, that conversation continues. Maybe not the same speed, maybe not the same level as 2019, but it continues. And I've seen certainly, again, in a range of uh, of newspapers, regular commentators continuing to make the same point month in, month out, uh, highlighting the inequalities and putting forward, actually, policy suggestions. Uh, For example, the cap on the number of students from private schools uh, going on to universities is one that features regularly now uh, within the Guardian. Um, in fact, The Guardian came out in 2019 uh, for the proposals being made for Labour Grants Private Schools. So there's their understanding now, a level of understanding and an appetite for this. And in the wider public, only this week, um, there was a YouGov poll, which for the first time showed that the majority of those questioned support the removal of charitable status from private schools. Um, and certainly an increase in those who feel that private schools per se are unfair and that something, whatever that might be, should be done about it. So I'm really pleased to see this conversation continues. I'm, I'm, I'm so proud of Sol for the work that he's done and continuing to fight the fight and raise awareness. I think it's our job, um, those of you who, who are listening today, those of us who are more if you like the activist, myself, a, a local politician, but also somebody who considers myself still to be a community grassroots activist. There is still a role for us to continue to have those conversations uh, within our local political parties, uh, within our trade unions, bringing motions, having the conversation, lifting the debate, and continue to raise questions through media. Um, Labour Against Private Schools continues. Uh, We are now, myself and Saul, looking at the next iteration uh, of the campaign. So if you are interested and you feel you have some skills that you would like to offer to the campaign team, now is the time to approach us and um, we can begin to have a conversation about what possible roles um, we might have for you in the campaign. We um, We want to take the debate out, and we want to take it outside uh, indeed the labor party though there will always be a conversation uh, within the labor party and we want to build on that success from the 2019 confirm motion where within the labor party there was unanimous support for our motion um, for in terms of integrating private schools into the state sector now like rebecca i feel that that's something that can't be done overnight we know in finland it took uh, a good 10 years uh, from the late 60s through the 70s, um, but it did happen. And I'll be honest with you, my long-term aspiration is to achieve something of the manner that uh, Finland has. And we all know um, that Finland, certainly in in so many ways, in fact, in terms of you know general well-being, of which educational outcomes are crucial, Finland continues to uh, hit the top of the indices for the world's happiest, uh, with the best well-being for its population. Why would you not want to have that for our own country? Education, as ever, is going to be the foundation, the cornerstone of that. So um, I look forward to hearing from people who might want to work with us in the future. Thank you to Saul and uh, to Rebecca and uh, look forward to continuing the debate with you. Thank you.
1: Thank you so much, Stephen. Um, that was a really insightful overview and it's so interesting to hear about the ways in which this policy paper has real tangible links with grassroots conversations around educational inequality um, and how that's tapped into wider societal views on the future of education as well. So I don't see any questions in the chat box, but um, get those flowing um, and we'll come back to that. Um, In the meantime, the Finnish model was mentioned twice in the um, presentations. and I'm wondering what could we learn from countries like Finland about how to approach uh, inequalities that are caused by private schools and what the future of education means um, as part of uh, a broader reimagining of how we see um, our society and levels of fairness in our society. Would you
0: like me to have a. Fire away, absolutely. I got that, yeah. Um, I'm I'm no expert on the Finnish school system, but um, people will be aware of its 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 very very good reputation, um, not just in terms of the PISA scores, which you know are less concern actually in Finland, but also just just generally the the quality and the progressive nature of the education. Um, the as I understand it, the the what happened in Finland over a period of years, as Stephen indicated. Um, a lot of independently operated schools were effectively drawn within a kind of state umbrella, so they're completely state funded, and they have to follow all of the the state rules and regulations and core curriculum and so on. So they operate effectively as state schools, um, and it, and it's just it's just illegal to charge, and it actually means that that everybody gets the the same education, you know, um, and it it it's and people get very there's a sort of small start of concern around the kind of postcode lottery thing, especially around the Helsinki area now, where people are feeling the better schools are starting to, to attract the, the more expensive sort of um, apartment prices and so on, but. Generally, I just think it's, I, I don't think it could be replicated here. I think we have too entrenched a system and it's too, it's too difficult. Um, but I think it's a, a real testament to the fact that you can have a world-class education system without anyone paying.
1: Great. Um, I'll move on to Stephen quickly there just first. Um, so, uh, Stephen, uh, what, what do you think that uh, a system like that would mean for the young people that you speak to? you have spoken about them being aware of educational inequalities as well.
3: Yeah, very much so. Well, I mean, straight away, I mean, some of the the outcomes have been hinted at already, the educational outcomes, the unfair, unequal outcomes. We know, for example, the top uh, five uh, private schools uh, in the country um, send more students to Oxbridge than the whole of the state sector in England and Wales. So, and the, and the children are broadly aware of that. You know, they, they, they are not, the conversations are now happening around the family dining table, at home, you know, in schools, people are more aware of it. And people are, um, you know, are not happy with that, not least the children who who really feel it. And they understand that that, you know, reduces their chances, not necessarily, well, certainly not because they are less intelligent or achieve uh, less uh, less good results than their peers in private schools but simply because the amount of the resources that these schools can provide, in terms of, for example, careers advice. You know, careers advice, which obviously is linked to um, your advice for, you know, where do you go after 16 and then 18 higher education, you know, that was decimated by the Tories back in 2010. Um, So, you know, it, it was bad enough in the past, but now it's literally um, unless you have a school that's decided to, to invest in that area specifically. Um, you know, it's extremely difficult for young people to get the advice they need to make the next uh, move to the next level. But of course, private schools, not only do they have the resources to employ those full-time careers advisors, further education, higher education advisors, but they have a, a whole network linked into the top universities where, you know, they're literally exchange programs going on throughout their academic year between said colleges, universities, and the schools so that the schools, you know, the children themselves become totally attuned to the culture, the application process, what needs to be done, how to present yourself, how to hold yourself. You know, it's it's incredible. It's the whole cultural um, education, which Rebecca um, hinted at earlier on, that is passed on to children in private schools. And the state school students understand that. You know, they understand that. Um, and so first of all it's it's about tackling that obvious inequality. but quite frankly as well, I think you know um, looking at a model which reduces and I would argue ultimately integrate like Finland um, the the private into the state sector is that will be a, a benefit to students that currently go to private schools because private schools, whilst they might have fantastic resources, We know they have a plethora of problems not least in terms to some of the cultural arrogance shall we call it um that has been linked to a range of issues um within private schools more recently we've had the whole sexual abuse scandals within schools that started off as a result of campaigning work that's been done for many years now by previous ex private schools who've you know flagged up raised the alarm bells so there's some real significant issues there in terms of, I would argue, and I'm not certainly not the first person to say it, the damage that some of the toxic cultures that we find can find within some private schools, the impact that has on the individuals, and therefore the impact that ultimately has in wider society and the institutions that these young people go on to populate and dominate in later years, you know, you have to raise some significant questions when you look at the, uh, first of all, the cabinet table. of our cabinet went to private schools. I'll I'll let people fill in the blanks in the spaces there. Um, 73% of our senior judges go to private schools. Now, you know, the culture, the traits, both the positives and the negatives, of which there are both, are carried through in those institutions. And it's my strong belief that not only will working class, middle class children, benefit from having a more level playing field, Socially and culturally, I genuinely believe it's in the interest of uh, private uh, many private school students to have the ability to interact with our state students, learn from them, um, and develop those softer skills, which are less toxic, that I think are desperately needed for them.
1: Thank you, um, and, and on to Sol. So uh, Rebecca doesn't think it, it's feasible um, in, in the UK to, to look at a, a Finnish model, I suppose. To what extent do you agree with that and and what would the kind of first steps be to building legitimacy around um some of the more transformative reforms to the the current private education system
2: i think i think rebecca's right in the sense that the context is so radically different um and and the and and also in, in 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 what you said about the the entrenched nature um and You, I think, mentioned this briefly, but some of the work that you've done with with Jane Kenway and um, Malcolm James really highlighted the way that the state has uh, enabled and, you know, Acts of Parliament have enabled the financial um, and material uh interests that the private schools currently have to be maintained um i don't know if you want to come in on that any of that but i think that entrenched nature of things means that it, it is going to be a different path i think steve steven's right that it's going to be a it's a it's a long term process what we're what we're arguing for um i i think first steps but i could say something about first steps but do you want to come in and then i could maybe come back rebecca
0: Yeah, I I would just say, really, um, I I think it's not impossible that they go. But I think given the very, very entrenched nature of this, I don't think it's a sort of feasible policy objective at the moment. And I also think it would, you know, you'd encounter such an enormous backlash. I mean, our our work on, on abolishing the tax breaks, provoked like an absolutely enormous kind of critical backlash and so on. Um, so I, <clears throat> I think it's better to do it in terms of you can make a, a very strong economic case for withdrawing state support for these schools and for withdrawing um, the, the beneficial use of, of public kind of resources like endowments and charitable resources. And in many senses, I think what would happen then is a lot of them would continue, but their cachet and their status and their position would be significantly diminished. And, and crucial to me to that is is the universities because these schools act as escalators yeah. into, you know, the so-called better universities, which is a contentious term anyway. Yeah. Um, I absolutely endorse what Stephen said on that in the um, – you know it's it's just a conveyor belt straight in there and a lot of people don't realize they think because students pay fees now that the universities are individually kind of you know you you pay for your own education but because of the the 50 percent right of half the money lent to students in the uk now gets written off yeah and that's paid for by taxpayers so there's still a huge uk taxpayer subsidy so if you the case for that removing that if you remove that that accelerated progress into universities you quite effectively dent the the rationale for these schools existing yeah. because yeah. they no longer give you that that leg up that that, that they do at the moment
2: no i i agree and i think that 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 disincentivizing is 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 really important there um and and i think the other the other thing that i want to um to come back on, is that the? I think on that point around feasibility, um, the whether 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 it's something that I think I think, it, I think it, it, it's going to be difficult. But the point is to to start and and to build movements and build conversations at a local level um, that create and and create challenge. And, and you know, one of the first first things that I mentioned was around um, the, the having a petition or or, or, or um, persuading uh, local councillors to write to um, local private schools and ask for for donations of money, um, and that even even if it's not achieved, it still highlights the fact that there are these inequalities. And what we have to do really is is change the conversation. It is really. Gradually build um, the mom- the momentum behind a different sort of educational politics, and I-, I think that that work of disincentivizing around higher education is is important, um, and it's certainly you know a lot of the toxic culture in higher education around uh, classism, racism, and sexism mm-hmm. um, follows on, you know, really follows on. Um, I-, I'm- I think I've been spotlighted here. Um, <laughs> I, I don't know if we want to come in. Stephen, you wanted to come in. I think we've got uh, a question here
3: as well. Yeah, just to say, um, you know, we know in Finland, it took uh, over ten, just over 10 years, um, probably longer actually in reality, um, to, to get where we are. And, and I have to say, you know, in Finland, it, it is the case that private schools exist. There are still 64 private schools in Finland. But as Rebecca rightly says, by law, they are not allowed to uh, charge fees. So on paper, they're private that's not a bad thing because it means that and i'm fully in favor of this that individual schools are allowed to have if you like their own their own ethos their own pedagogy special to their school special to their mission that's fine you know if that's what a private school means in finland fantastic um but they're not allowed to uh, charge fees so again children have when they go into the education system whether it's these 64 private schools in name only, effectively, it would seem. Um, certainly nothing to do with the the, the funding and the per pupil funding. You know, they go in with the same resources. The reality is, every child, you know, they're not a bubble, they have a family behind them. So, sure the more middle-class, the more upper-class children in, in, in Finland, they're going to have the resources that their parents are going to be spending them of an evening with possibly extra classes, music classes, you know, the lovely visits to the museums and galleries of the World Weekend, building that social capacity. Nobody's saying that that should stop. We know that will continue and quite rightly I mean, we're not draconian. We're not saying remove the rights of parents to, you know, have an input and an impact on their children. What we're saying is, if we genuinely believe in a democratic society where equality is important, then let's re- remove the um, obscene inequalities that have developed over the centuries in this country. If we're genuine about a democratic and more equal society, and of course, it will take time. I mean, one of the <laughs> There's been a big debate within Labour against private schools. We, uh, as all well knows, uh, about our, our tagline, which is um, abolish Eton. Now, you know, that has won us the attention of the media, and we, you know, we we use that remorselessly, remorselessly, as I said before. And you know, that 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 had great impact at the time, but we we're, we're not we're not we're realistic people, as Rebecca has, has highlighted. It's about integrating, and that will take in this country at least a decade, if not two, for the reasons Rebecca's highlighted, the the nature of the country and the structural inequalities and the culture will require a longer time. So it's not so much like we're talking like tomorrow, we're going to burn down Eton, God forbid, knock down Eton. No, it's about looking at introducing reform to integrate those schools so that we have a more level playing field moving forward. And as for it being unrealistic or setting our sights too high, well, you know, there's been plenty of times that people in the past have set their sights high. I seem to remember in the past, there are some people believe that women shouldn't have a right to vote, and we were warned that, oh, goodness, you know, if we, if we set ourselves, you know, to all women to have an equal vote, then, you know, we're, we're setting ourselves too too great a challenge there. I remember the the Chamber of Business and Industry back in the day, in the 90s, You know, it was all over the newspapers about the the travesty of a minimum wage being introduced into the United Kingdom in the 1990s. We're not ready for that. And yet here we are. Does anybody bat an eyelid about the minimum wage? Does anybody seriously argue against the minimum wage these days? Not even the Tory party. So yes, I understand the reservations. I understand the reality chat. But if if we're true to our desire to see more equality, then we do have to aspire towards a much, much fairer system, um, set the goal high and let's see how far we can get to achieving it.
1: Thank you. Um, so we have a few minutes left um, and we've got some questions now, which is brilliant. Um, so the first question is on governance. So should we look at existing network governance like MATs, have, um, private and state schools in their network um, and what are the tools at the disposal there? So I'll hand that to Sol.
3: Yeah,
2: so I'm going to talk to that point, um, particularly around – I'm not going to talk so much to the Matt point, but basically there there are 32 former private schools that have become state schools since 2007. Um, And I've actually – I'm going to do that academic thing where I say I've I've written a paper about this. Um, (laughs) But but, – those private schools, basically, they were integrated as, as free schools and academies. Um, and there's a bit of variation within them uh, in terms of what sorts of schools. Like some of them are are quite are more experimental um, uh, schools. One of them, I think, is a Steiner school. But, but the larger schools within that group are um, sort of what you would expect from a sort of middle class private school basically but often those that have essentially fallen on hard times uh there was one down in um north tyneside near where i live now um another one in liverpool 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 college uh and a couple in bristol as well um now that route what what it hasn't changed actually is is that in all of all, all of those schools um this isn't in the paper but in all of those schools, that they actually had um, lower proportions of free school meals than their surrounding state schools, and this links, I think, to one of the other questions we've had about whether I would, whether we would support grammar schools. And personally, I, I certainly would not. Um, and. It, and this point about the private schools that have converted to the state sector through sort of uh, a pre-existing process is that because it hasn't been done alongside admissions reform within local areas, it hasn't necessarily meant that those schools have ceased to be dominated by by the affluent, by the middle class, um, and I, you know, I don't see the grammar school model as as one that we would want to go back to. If anything, the comprehensive school reform didn't go far enough. It should have gone on to do post sixteen and, and higher education as well. So we'd have a a fully comprehensive system throughout. Um, and uh, I wanted to just mention that a friend of mine once told me that uh, when we were talking about this that. Eton could could eventually perhaps become a, a museum a bit like Versailles. You know, you could you could wander around and, and say, oh, isn't it strange they used to educate the Prime Ministers here?
1: <laughs> okay, um so we've got a couple of questions on governance and they, they overlap um, a fair bit. So if private schools or charities, how does the governance and accountability work? Is there opportunity for challenging? Um, strategy at an individual level um, and, and what does the governance look like there and how can we change that? I'll maybe pass that one to yourself Rebecca.
0: Ah, thank you. Um, well this goes back really, how sadly no, not much opportunity for, for individual challenge on, on on the governance in charities. Um, generally it has to be said these 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 schools operate within the law and the problem is the way in which the law is written. Um, rather than the fact that, you know, which, which, and as long as they stay within the law, they're fine. Um, there might be scope for slightly kind of stronger, firmer action by the Charity Commission. Um, but the Charity Commission at the moment appears to be, um, as one noble peer put it to me the other day, you know, completely beholden to the government. Um so, uh, you know, a rather toothless charity commission is is actually aiding and enabling um, a loose thing. The, the trouble with the charity law is it's written such that the trustees of these schools have huge amounts of discretion over what happens. The government, the state has absolutely no control over how uh, charity trustees opt to fulfill their charitable purposes. And, and that's why it really requires a kind of very strong legal reform um, of, of the schools. I mean, I, like Sol, I've written a paper about this, about the very lengthy 400-year process by, by which this, this came about. Um, my, my preferred option is, is just to remove charitable status from these schools because I, I, uh, uh, that would require a, a reform in charity law. So the short answer is no, I'm afraid. <laughs> um, okay.
1: Thank you so much. Um, so that's us now at seven o'clock. Um, so unless any of you had some um, last point to make on the final questions? No. Um, what I might ask you to do is to just do a, a, a round a, a one minute wrap up each on what you want the, the future of education to to look like and how we can tackle educational inequalities. So I'll, I'll pick on you first.
2: Thanks. I mean, I think we need a. I said before a fully comprehensive, non-selective system, uh, and that does involve the redistribution of resources uh, between private schools and, and state schools and ultimately their integration, but also thinking about redistribution of resources within the higher education system and ending the, ending the vocational academic divide um, and and really seriously funding further education and adult community education in a way that they, they are always neglected and prison education, I would say as well. Um, so a complete reorientation of priorities
1: Brilliant, nice and
3: ambitious. Um, Stephen. Yeah, thank you, Miriam. Yeah, so I mean, from my point of view, I'm very much coming from an activist level, uh, my organization with Labour Against Private Schools. As I say, we're ready for a reboot, possibly for a rename as well, trying to spread our wings more widely, uh, build uh, relationships uh, beyond the the Labour Party. Uh, So if anybody's interested in getting involved and um, lending a hand, um then we look forward to having you um you know join us in this next exciting stage of pushing this agenda forward so yeah thank you for the invite this evening it's been a pleasure uh, speaking to you all
0: brilliant and last but not least rebecca i i'd absolutely endorse everything that soul said and indeed stephen um but especially around um I, I think one thing that really needs to happen, and actually is why this report is is really important, is, is I think there needs to be a better public discussion and understanding about education, about how it's funded, about who gets what and what the benefits and the downsides of things are. And, and so in a sense, it needs to be... I think the rhetoric needs to be de-escalated. I get fed up of getting into Twitter fights with people who are telling me I'm just, you know, some nasty Marxist commie who wants to undermine hardworking parents who pay for their kids' education. All of that needs to go. I think we need a really serious, sensible national discussion about about the importance of co- equalities in education. And I think the kind of things that that Sol wants um, out of that will 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 come. You know, and um yeah, I think every and everybody should join in. <laughs> but I think it's gotta be really well, well evidenced and well argued and well reasoned. And people need to understand why things are as they are and how we can begin to to unpick that. And I think it's it's it's, it's a long job. It's not an overnight stroke of the pen thing. Fantastic.
1: Um a very very useful note to end on there um, and a good rallying cry for people to get involved too. Um, So that's our our time up now, so I just want to say a huge thank you to Saul for this incredibly important work, to TWT for hosting this event, to Rebecca and Stephen for presenting tonight, and to all of you for coming along and asking questions. A, A huge thank you.
0: Imagine. Demand and build a world transformed.